scripture reading for today is Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of the darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we are able to come and freely worship and praise you um, and learn more about who you are and how to glorify you in our lives. I ask that this morning that you would soften our hearts and prepare, prepare us to hear the words that you have for us. And I ask that you would, that your spirit would be with Kevin as he comes up this morning and speaks and shares your truth and that he would speak boldly and clearly and that, again, you would prepare our hearts to hear. We love you and thank you in your name. Amen. Be seated. Um, Derek, will you grab the, the lights over here? I think um, um, so before we before we dive into our uh, scripture this morning, thank you, Brent. Um, ooh, okay, my eye just went crazy. For those of you guys who don't know, I'm basically blind in my left eye right now. So if you see me like at some point during my sermon just doing this, it's because I can't read my notes. Um, I think Stephen's gonna get me a pirate patch. I'm actually kind of excited about it. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, before we, before we dive into the text this morning, if I could get the elders to come up here on stage with me, and then if I could also get Blaine and Jamie and Jake and Allison, or as I should say, Dr. Gregory, um, to report to the front. That's right. Especially the smartest person in the world. Yes. Um, I mean, everyone's smarter than me, so it doesn't take much. So, um, so for those of you guys who don't know, this is Blaine and Jamie and Jake and Dr. Gregory's last um, Sunday with us. Uh, about... About six years ago, um, Blaine and Jake and Allison uh, were a part of the original group that were here. Um, maybe Blaine not for like another month or two, but uh, were a part of the original crew when this church was a group of like 10 people meeting in a room about the size of this place over. It was actually Jake's house at the time um, in a fairly sketchy part of town. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> so, uh, but they've been here and seen God do so much. And so, if, first of all, if I could just get you guys to give them a hand, um, just for all they've done over the years here. 
if you guys have ever eaten here on a Sunday morning, you have Blaine and Jamie to thank for that. So I, I think you should come up and individually thank them afterwards and thank them for the delicious pancakes, bacon, everything else that they've made you guys over the years here. Uh, a lot of you guys are probably here because Jake personally invited you or Allison as well. And so uh, we just want to uh, lay hands on you guys and pray for you this morning. Pray for um, Blaine and Jamie as they're heading to Arkansas to attend medical school at the University of Arkansas. Yes, I know it's a rival school, uh, but we still are, are thankful for them. And then Allison uh, got a job up in Jacksonville and is going to be a dentist. So if you know anybody in the Jacksonville area that needs an awesome dentist, see Allison. She'll be great. She's the one that told me I needed to start seeing the dentist again. <laughs> so found out cavities do still form even if you don't see the dentist for a decade. So... Yeah, I saw, by the way, everyone was laughing at that until I said that I hadn't been a dentist in a decade, and then I got a bunch of like, ooh. <laughs> so, my apologies. My wife's right there with you, by the way. Uh, but we're going to pray for you guys, and honestly, guys, thank you so much for all that you've done here. We're so thankful for your guys' service to this church, but more importantly, your love for Jesus and the way that that has been displayed in this city um, over the last five plus years. So, uh, we're going to lay hands on you, and we're going to pray for you guys. God, um, what a, what a, what a, a crazy, um, just event to celebrate. You know, having to say goodbye to 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 friends and and people that really that you consider closer than a lot of your family um, over the course of the last five years is never easy. And yet we rejoice um, because Lord, we know that you've called uh, these men and these women to the next season uh, of life. Um, I pray that you would bless. Uh, Jake and Allison and Blaine and Jamie, that um, you would help them get plugged into church communities both in Arkansas and Jacksonville right away, um, that they would uh, be able to use their gifts and their talents that you have given them uh, right away, uh, the ways that they have so faithfully served here for so many years. Um, I pray that you would give Blaine and Jamie special ability to just ace medical school as quickly as possible and as easily and painlessly as possible. And I pray that Allison would enjoy her transition to the working world. And I pray, Lord, that um, you would use them in mighty ways for whatever church that you call them to be a part of next. I thank you for the gift that it was for us as a church family to be able to enjoy our time with them to learn and grow, to walk in repentance and faith towards you. God, what a gift it is to be able to share life with one another. And I thank you for the lives of these four people on stage. Lord, uh, bless them and all that they're going to do. And may we be able to stay in touch and rejoice in all that you're doing both here in Gainesville and in their lives. Thank you, Jesus, that we can say goodbye, but it's never permanent that one day we will in eternity worship you forever and ever together. We love you, Jesus, and we ask this all in your name. Amen. Thank you, guys. We love you guys. Awesome. I think that will not be the last time we're doing that in the next couple weeks, but um, anyway, 
Always, always hard to say goodbye, uh, but excited for the next stage. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 13. Um, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to finish up that chapter. Um, last week, Brent talked to you guys um, about the role of the state uh, in the life of a believer. And when I say state, I mean um, your, your local government, your state government, your federal government, if you live in the United States, if you are from somewhere else and just visiting, whatever uh, particular form of government your country may operate under. That's basically what uh, Brent was talking about last week. Uh, and, and, and in reality, um, I was disappointed to miss it. Um, but I was in Colorado, which is basically uh, Neverland. Um, I'm not joking. If you've ever been to Colorado, it's literally just like, if, if anybody ever seen the movie Peter Pan? Okay, so like half of you know what I'm talking about. And Peter, in the movie Peter Pan, or Hook, right? There we go. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about when I say that. Neverland is the place where Peter Pan and, and the Lost Boys never grow up. That's Colorado. Um, no one there ever grows up. And so it was kind of depressing, but fun at the same time. It was good for a visit. I wouldn't want to live there. Um, anyway, last week when Brent was talking, right, I think it's an important and timely topic, uh, at least for us culturally in the U.S., to, to, to begin to think through and discuss um, what it means to be a follower of Christ and how we engage our culture around us, uh, both in our sphere of like immediate influence, but also maybe politically as well. Uh, there has never been a time, at least in my life, again, I'm only 32, but there's never been a time in my life where I, I would say that as a, as a culture, at least in the U.S., that we are more politically charged than now. Um, I don't know if it's the increased media exposure or whatever it may be, but our, our culture is extremely polarized, at least in a, in a political sphere, uh, and I, I, I kind of believe this too. It's increasingly over exaggerated to the extent of what things actually matter. You know, like, I mean, I remember when I was in high school, everything was George Bush's fault and every, everything was Obama's fault. Now everything's Trump's fault. And, you know, in reality, um, your local government has far more to do with things that go on around you. And yet, usually, the average voting percentage for a, a local election in any given state or, or county is around 10%. So, who do we have to blame? Ourselves. Right, we don't show up to the polls. Uh, but that being said, I still think it's important for us to think through um, how we respond to the actions of our government and how we, if we consider ourselves to be a follower of Christ, what, what God wants us to do, because that's far more important. It's, 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 it's less so about what we want to do personally and more so what does God ask of us? What does is, what is God request of his sons and daughters and how they engage the world around them. And, and Brent mentioned last week that submission to authority is an act of worship. That submitting to those that God has placed in authority over your life is actually an act of worship. And so if you're a, a kid under the age of 18 this morning in this room, submission to your parents is an act of obedience and worship to God. If you are employed here in town, submission to your boss and your employer is an act of worship unto God. If you are a student, submission to the dean of your college and your professors and doing what they ask of you is an act of worship unto God. And for us, if you're an American citizen in here, right, submitting to your government, and the, the, the prime example that they used last week was paying taxes, submission to your government is therefore an act of worship whether or not that leader or that person in authority or in charge of you is actually a godly ruler or not. And that, that kind of tends to be where we as Christians really start to struggle. 
right? Because if the person in authority over us seems to be a wicked man or woman, we start wanting to push back and say, well, I don't have to listen to them. And yet Paul says it doesn't matter, right, if there are wicked men and women in leadership over you, God has placed that person there for his glory and for a purpose for you to glorify him in the midst of persecution and suffering if they're wicked, or to enjoy a season of blessing if they're not. And that we respond to that. And so I would say that, yes, Brent, submission to authority is an act of worship. Yes and amen. But God places both godly and ungodly leadership over nations for his purposes. If, if you guys don't believe me, by the way, just read the Old Testament. right? If you read Israel's history starting from about the time of the judges, really in reality, even before then, the time of Moses, right? There are godly leaders, there are wicked leaders, and yet every time, God gets the glory. Every time. Whether there's a wicked king ruling the nation of Israel or a godly king ruling the nation of Israel, God is not absent. For the, the nations and enemies surrounding Israel, there were wicked leaders, and yet God's power was put on display time and time again, even if it meant Israel had to be corrected for a season. And at times, even if you read certain books like the, the book of Daniel, you see wicked, ungodly leaders still being used by God to declare even the majesty of God. Right? The king of Babylon declares the glories and the riches of God because of Daniel's witness in the midst of persecution and exile. And so as we go and start working through this text, right, it's important to understand that what we looked at two weeks ago, what we looked at last week, and then what we're going to look at this morning is really kind of a three-part section in what Paul is trying to teach the church at Rome. Right, two weeks ago, I, I kind of started off my sermon talking about how we were going to learn what true love looked like, that that was going to be Paul's goal in uh, starting in the second half of Romans chapter 12, that there, there is a need for genuine love and, and, and the kind of work that the church is supposed to do amongst itself is that we work to outdo one another in love and good deeds, that the only type of competition that should be amongst brothers and sisters in Christ is outdoing love for one another, serving one another, loving one another well. That we love our brothers and sisters within the church and that because of that unity and that love, it's attractive to a world outside of our immediate gospel community. And then last week, right, we saw, it kind of seemed like it didn't fit, right? If you, if you read the end of Romans 12, it's like, okay, we're, we, we love one another and we love our enemies. That's kind of the, the main theme of the end of Romans 12. And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, submit to your government. It's like, wait, wait a minute, Paul seems to have completely shifted gears here. And then when we get to the text we look at this morning in Romans chapter 13, we see he's going to shift from our need to love one another and love our enemies to our need to love our neighbor. And this is not an accident that Paul sets up the text this way, because oftentimes if you read Romans 13, especially in our culture, we read the Bible from an individualistic perspective. And so I read Romans 13, verse 8. Let me read it. Owe no, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And I read that from an individual perspective, saying, okay, I've got to love my next-door neighbor. 
right? And I'm not supposed to owe them anything on my life. But what we're going to see is this is actually supposed to be done in light of what we read at the end of Romans 12 and at the beginning of Romans 13, whereas corporately as the church, here is what we are to engage in as the men and women of God and how we engage our culture. And if Romans 13, the beginning of it was how we engage our government, this second half of Romans 13 is going to be how we engage the people of our culture all the time. Not just your individual neighbor, but how we engage both in civic and political and public life, but also how we engage on a personal level with those around us. Now, let me say this. Many people in the church would argue today, right, that the reason we have so many ills in the world and the reason why everything seems to be going terrible and, you know, whatever else is, is because the, the church has not been engaged enough in politics or, you know, they took God out of schools or after school care, or that parents aren't involved enough, right? We, we, we create a, a list of reasons and, and whatever else of, of why the world seems to be going insane. Um, I would argue more so it has to do with eschatology, but we can talk about that later. Uh, this has led to, right, in the mind of many within the church, a, a decline in morals, uh, a decreased influence of the church here in the U.S., and, and all the, the problems and things that we see. But I think the text this morning is going to instead encourage us to reflect on how we engage the culture around us and how some of the things that we see may, may be because the church maybe has engaged over the course of the last 50 to 100 years, but it may not be the way that God has asked us to engage. That may have been done so in such a way that while being active was not effective, while being real may not have been what God's design was for his church as they engaged the culture. So let me, let me read verses 8 through 10, and that'll give us a little context for what I mean. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, so, so those verses bring me back to the, the point I made just a few minutes ago, that, that, that verses 1 through 7 of Romans 13 actually fit into the context of the end of Romans 12 and these six or seven verses here. Right, if the end of Romans 12 is love your enemy and verses 8 through 14 are about loving your neighbor, when you look at verses 1 through 7 of Romans chapter 13, you see that his transition from enemy to state to neighbor is actually all connected. That Paul is calling on Christians in Rome to engage the culture around them. Right? And the first thing he says there in verse 8 is, Oh, no one anything. Right? He's not, and he's not referring to Dave Ramsey's financial peace principles about getting out of debt as quickly as possible. I mean, I think there's maybe a lesson to take away from that in the sense of, hey, debt's probably not great, or at least a ton of it. But what he's actually saying is to, to, to think through how we engage civic and public life around us. That even though the culture around us may be hostile and unthankful for us, 
we can still engage in such a way as that we are life-bringing and creators to the culture around us instead of people that simply take and receive. Right, if you think back, right, all the way back to Genesis, right, God created all things and then he created Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. And in that image bearing, that human beings by definition were supposed to till and cultivate and create. Because the, humans, the human mind has the ability to reflect the creative genius of our God. And one of the ways that within the fall we have gotten away from that is that we move from a group of people created in the image and likeness of God who are supposed to be mirroring that beauty to a group of people who instead consume and destroy all around us. And so what Paul is actually saying here when you get to verse 8 is stop being a destroyer of everything around you and a consumer, but instead start creating and adding to life to what is around you instead of killing and murdering. Bring life to the culture. Bring life to the people around you so that you might affect them. Now, he says right, he says there at the, at the end of verse 10, right, that it's supposed to be with our neighbor, and that inevitably always brings up the question for us is who is our neighbor? Right, well, well who am I supposed to be bringing this, this love to? What does this culture creation look like? So turn with me to Luke chapter 10, because I wanna, I wanna go straight to the words of Jesus on this one. Because Jesus' own disciples and, and those that he was teaching around him struggled with this concept. You know, Jesus said to, to love your neighbor as yourself. And immediately, right, he started getting pushback on that. Because he's like, wait a minute, who's my neighbor? Are you talking about my next door neighbor? Are you talking about my neighbor down the street? Are you talking about uh, the guy who lives in the apartment above me who's loud all the time and banging on the floor and I can't stand it? Right, whatever, whatever it may be, right, who are we actually supposed to be engaging here? So look at what Jesus says. Um, he's, he's speaking to a crowd, and, and a lawyer stands up and says, you know, basically, hey, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you need to do what is written in the law. And, and he asks him, what do you say that is? And the lawyer responds by saying, well, uh, you know, I believe that uh, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, Jesus kind of says, yes. You've actually understood the weightiness of the entire Old Testament law can be broken down into those two things. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, that, that, that is what someone must do to inherit eternal life. But then look at what happens when you get to verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, this is the lawyer, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right, and notice by, by him asking that question, what is he actually saying to Jesus? There are some people out there that are unworthy of my love. There are some people out there that are unworthy of me following your command and your directive to love them. Now here's the reality. Everyone is. But to us and our ability to, to judge one another and as we take, we take in account of how people treat us and how we know them, it's easy to pick some people that deserve our love and our affections and our attentions, and there are others that we look at and say, well, that person doesn't deserve it, so I'm going to treat them like garbage. But that's basically what this guy is saying to Jesus. Jesus, I know you say love everyone, but there are some people that aren't worthy of it. 
And look at Jesus' response to him. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, right? So the religious leader passes by. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side, right? This is a member of God's family, a member of the priesthood. He may not be an active priest at the time, but a Levite, more than anyone, right, should have, should have shown compassion. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said to him, the one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Could this man who fell among the robbers repay the Samaritan in any way for his kindness at this time? No. Could he even display any, probably in some ways, any sort of even verbal affirmation for what he was doing? No. Jesus is sharing this parable to share with us this concept that we love the lowly and those who can't repay us. Those who can't give back to us in some way. He's basically saying, everyone. Your neighbor is everyone. It's your boss. It's your coworker. It's your teacher. It's your friend. It's your family member. It's your actual physical next door neighbor. It's the person you see jogging through your neighborhood. It's the homeless person sitting outside of a restaurant looking for food. That our neighbor is everyone that we come in contact with. And what this means then in light of what we see in Romans chapter 13 is that the call of a disciple of Christ is that we actually engage the culture around us and seek to have a positive influence on it. That we seek to be the hands and feet of Jesus within our culture. This means that we seek peace and prosperity for our country. That we seek peace and prosperity for our friends and neighbors and those around us. How many of you guys are familiar with the, the book of Jeremiah? By a show of hands. Yeah, about a third of you because most of us don't read the Old Testament because it's hard and scary. But if you ever read the book of Jeremiah, here's one of the beautiful things that you will notice as you read that book. Most people just read that and they're like, man, God was really mad at Israel. Well, yes. But if you ever look at what God commands Jeremiah to do as he, as he preaches to the faithful remnant of Israel, you actually get this really beautiful picture of what God wants his people to do. Here you have God promising the nation of Israel, you will be sent into exile and punished for your wickedness and rebellion towards me. And yet when you are taken out of Israel and taken into a foreign land, I want you to continue to take husbands and wives. I want you to have kids and raise them up the way that I've asked you to raise your children in Israel. I want you to be a blessing to the nation who has captured you. I want you to be doctors and lawyers and tradesmen who bring value to the culture around you. 
I want you to seek to live in peace and prosperity with the people around you, even though they were a conquering nation who destroyed much of what we knew as Jewish life. He calls the faithful remnant of the exiles of Israel to be culture makers and creators in the midst of some of the most horrible suffering and persecution that you could possibly imagine. Have kids, be godly, be prosperous. Practically what this means for us then is that we engage in civic life. That we care what goes on around us. Guys, this, this is admittedly, by the way, I'm preaching on this and this is hard for me. Just so you know, like this isn't like Kevin's really excited to come up here and tell us like, hey, we need to be active and involved in life around us. Especially because some of what I'm asking us to do is be engaged in politics. Right? Derek will be the first to tell you, right, three years ago, he had to sit down and have a conversation with me that my apathy towards politics was sinful. Right? I personally don't care what political persuasion you come from and don't care who's running because I don't trust any of them. That's just my personal opinion. I don't, I don't care. Right? So you get, like, here's always the interesting thing. Republicans hate Democrats and Democrats hate Republicans and both parties hate me. Because I don't trust any of them. Right? And that would come out in the way that I would talk to people and even at times in my preaching. And Derek told me, I was like, that's not okay. It's not okay for you to engage in life this way because I have very little hope and faith. But you know what the reality is? Is if I have very little hope and faith in any sort of civic engagement in my politics, the deeper underlying symptom of that is that I don't trust God to work in any of those situations. That I don't trust God to work in an ungodly man or woman that might be in office. That I don't trust God to work in an ungodly man or woman who might be a judge. That I don't trust God to be at work and, and, and doing things in someone who might have any authority or power over me. And so that my, my pushback on anything that I saw in the, in the political realm was actually a pushback on God and his sovereignty. And it was sinful. And Paul is saying to us here in Romans 13, look. As a Christian who knows God as his Savior and his King, as the the creator of life and the greatest agent of mercy that the world has ever seen, we are to be image bearers of that in our culture. And this means that we have a positive influence on everything around us including even the scary, yucky world of politics. And to be honest, he doesn't just say that we should engage society, but look at the language he actually uses there. He talks about it almost in terms of a debt. By not engaging in life around you, you are actually in debt, according to what Paul is saying here. By refusing to engage culture and life around you, you are going into debt to that culture because you're not doing what God has culturally mandated you to do. 
right? He says there in verse 9, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. He's not saying that, that we are earning our salvation. What he's actually saying, and he's made this clear, that the law for Christians is that we are to love our neighbors and the culture around us as we love ourselves, thereby fulfilling all the commands that God has given us to do to live as Christians. That we actually fulfill that law by loving the culture around us. Now, hear me on this. I am not saying that you have to love everything our culture announces. That you have to love every decision your political leaders make. But you can love somebody and not agree with what they're doing. But by disconnecting from them, you prove that you do not love them. I think I'm going to explain this a little bit more because this goes a little bit into what I talked about two weeks. That every culture has its take or description of what love is. Right? In our culture... Right? When we describe loving somebody, what we actually mean by that is we peddle love as a feeling or as an opportunity to allow someone to stay in idol worship and we mask it with enablement. Right? What we do is we say, just do whatever you want and for me to love you is to just accept you and enable you in that. Now the problem with that, right, is our culture is really quick on that. If you're someone who pushes back against that at all, you, you get made out to be a hypocrite and um, a liar, right, and evil. But the reality is even the same people that would make you out to be a hypocrite and a liar and evil, they even have a line of what they won't accept. Right, we might define, to, to share an example, we might say, okay, well you need to love everybody and let them do whatever they want unless they're a murderer or a pedophile. Everyone has a line. Right? Your line may just be ahead of someone else's. And this is why we must engage this with the mind of what God has asked us to do. Because the most loving thing we can do is to press someone into love and joy and knowledge of God. Now, Paul says the actual commands of Scripture are fulfilled by our love for somebody, right? Notice what he says, right? He uses a couple of examples. He said, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, right? He, he mentions a bunch of different commands there, right? Things that we're called to do, sins that I commit and have to confess and repent of regularly. But notice how he, he shares all those, right? If you love your neighbor and are seeking their best interests, are you going to murder? Are you going to commit adultery with them or against them? Are you going to steal? Are you going to covet what they have? No, the, the key to fulfilling the law is acting in love, not just obedience to simple commands. And that what God asks of us is to trust him as good, know his word, and then live that out onto others. Right, let me give you an example of how the church is called to engage right, culture in a loving manner, but maybe not necessarily the way the culture wants to around us. Okay? How many of you guys know my son, Josiah? Okay, yeah, a good amount of you. Okay, when Josiah was really, really little, okay, his, he, he developed epilepsy very, very early on. And, and with that epilepsy, 
right? He started to go on medication, and that medication had side effects, and he started to get behind developmentally. And it wasn't until about his sixth or seventh month that I would even, like, consider him having, like, woken up. And for, like, a, a, just, like, as a, a description for some of you guys that never had kids, most babies start waking up at about week two to week four. So Josiah was about five or six months behind the curve developmentally until they started getting some of his seizure activity under control. And what was really interesting is that once, once they started getting that under, at, under control, we started taking Josiah to physical therapy and occupational therapy. Now, if I listen to the culture around me and love Josiah the way the culture does around me, is basically my life with Josiah would be like a, a Montessori school. And those of you guys that went to Montessori school, I'm sorry, but I'm just banging on you for a minute. But it's like, we'll let Josiah decide when he wants to grow and learn how to walk and sit up and do all these things. Now, I can promise you this. That would have been one method of the way we could have loved Josiah, and Josiah would still not be walking. Because Josiah was so kind of tired, and everything was so hard for him, and he was so far behind, and his body grew during this time, but his muscles and his ability to control things did not, that if we had not pushed him, and his physical therapist and his occupational therapist had not pushed him past his comfort zone, he would have never grown stronger. To love Josiah well in that season was to push him past what was comfortable and what he thought was right and good. Was to love him enough to force him to do his physical therapy and to take his thumb out of his mouth when he didn't want to do anything. That's his defense mechanism, by the way. If you're ever watching my kid, if you see him stick his thumb in his mouth, it means he's trying to get away from doing anything, just pull it out. Right? And so we'd pull his thumb out of his mouth and he'd get mad, he'd cry, and then he'd, then he'd try again. And he'd put his thumb back in his mouth and we'd pull it out and we'd try again. Right? Super simple, yet so many of us have friends, family, people around us, and in the name of love, we let them stick their thumbs in their mouths and we don't say anything. We let them sit there and be authors of their own demise and their own self-destruction, and we say we're doing it in the name of love. How many of you guys, if you had seen Josiah in that season and six months later knew that we were supposed to be taking him to PT and OT and I said to you, well, he didn't really seem to like it, so we pulled him out of it. How many of you guys would have called child services on me? Thank you. At least the elders raised their hand. The rest of you are doing exactly what I told you. You do. Loving people is not just submitting to what they think is right or good. It's loving them. It's walking out life with them. It's being an agent of change and attention to them in some given season, but it's also being loyal to the word of God. Paul actually quotes scripture there. He gives you a command to love your neighbor, but then he actually says, hey, loving your neighbor is these commands that God gave us. That is loving your neighbor as yourself. To not covet, to not steal, to not do these things. That is to love them well. God is calling us to engage our culture even with issues at times that we would consider to be social justice causes. Right? This is like one of the areas where the church is really struggling right now. We can never find ourselves in the middle. We always want to teeter one way or the other, right? We see our, our, our culture 
seeing what we might consider to be some sort of discrimination or disparity. And so the culture, you know, leads the charge, right? And the church either goes all in with them and just comes alongside the culture and just gets right involved with the culture, or they swing the other way and say, oh, I can't be with what the culture's doing, so I'm not going to be involved at all. Guys, there's a third way. There's the way to love and see what we might consider to be discrimination or disparity and call it out for what it is and still love it in the way that God calls us to instead of just jumping on the back of the culture around us. And the church can be the agent of change, not the culture around us with us joining in. The church over the years, guys, has done some pretty amazing things when they've done it in a way that God asks us to. Our modern education system and the way we learn and our level of literacy, do you know who we have to thank for that? The church, the Reformation. The church decided, hey, it's not wise for people not to be able to read the word of God. Let's get Bibles in people's hands and teach them how to read. Right? Fortunately, right, a couple hundred years ago, many of the leading abolitionists in this country that were denouncing slavery were Christian leaders. Sadly, there were also many Christian leaders on the other side who didn't denounce it. And as a matter of fact, they affirmed it and supported it. Where are we going to be? Now, right, as we sit here and we say, okay, God is calling us to love our neighbors and in that be culture makers and creators and love the world around us. How do we do this? Because admittedly, it's going to be hard. Right? How do we stay encouraged? How do we stay motivated? I think what Paul shares in the rest of chapter 13 should give us some indication. Right? Look at verses 11 through 14 with me. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. This is what he's basically saying to the church at Rome. You're asleep. You're not doing anything. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Right, what is Paul saying here? He says, he's saying what motivates Christians to live in a way that they love their enemies, submit to their local government, and love their neighbors as they love themselves should be two things. The gospel and eternal perspective. Right, he says to put on Christ and know that salvation is near. Right? And verses, verses 11 and 12 are this, a poetic way of saying this. You, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, are a citizen of his kingdom, not just the country you're in now. Meaning that if you are a follower of Christ, you are not just after right, American interests. Primarily, you're after the interests of Jesus' kingdom. And if American interests conflict with Jesus' kingdom, guess which kingdom you pick? Jesus's. 
Because long after America falls and crumbles as an empire, Jesus' kingdom will still be here. If you don't believe me, study Roman history. If you don't believe me, study British history. If you don't believe me, study French and German history. The kings and queens and presidents and governments of this world rise and fall. Guess what's continued to grow over the course of the last 2,000 years? God's kingdom. And I don't care what doomsday you've been told about the fall of Christianity in America. It ain't fallen the way you think it is. We might see the death of cultural Christianity in America. We are not seeing the death of the church. And I know this, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. So I'm not really worried about the culture. I'm a little bit more scared of Satan than I am our government. Maybe not much, but a little bit. Right, that what Paul is saying here, right, is that, that you and I, are citizens of God's kingdom and that the full realization of that kingdom is closer now than it has ever been. And therefore, we are to live life as a citizen of that kingdom because he has forever changed our lives. He says, put on the armor of light, saying, live differently than the culture around you. It's a poetic way of saying live differently. Don't be the same as everyone else. Right? And he says armor, because guess what? It's going to be difficult. People put on armor heading into battle. Why? Because they're heading into danger. To live differently and to live as an agent of Christ's kingdom means there's going to be some danger around you. In our country, probably just with words, you can handle it. And then he goes on to say this. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying there. Find your satisfaction in Christ first. Know who your father and king ultimately are. Guys, I think one of the most depressing things, and here's the, here's the sad part, is I find myself here too. Right? I see things that happen like the, the attack on that school in, in Texas this past week. I see things like that. It's horrible. Let's just, let's just call it for what it is. It's, it's wicked. And I have a tendency to despair. And I have a, ten- a tendency to blame and point fingers and get angry at those around me. But how much am I ever even really doing to be a part of the change for that in the first place? I'm really good at complaining. I'm not real good at bringing life into a situation. Heck, oftentimes, even as the church will say, we'll pray for something and we'll pray for it for 30 seconds and never pray for it again. And you want to know why I do that? Because I've lost perspective on who my father and my king ultimately is. I forget that I represent his kingdom and that no matter what is going on around me, God is still God. God is still sovereign and in control. God weeps about these very things that I'm weeping about, and yet he sent his son to reconcile all things to himself. 
I share with you guys from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 a couple weeks ago. If you'll throw that up there for me real quick, Brent. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 through 21 tells us this. If any of you guys have been around for any given time, you know that this is my favorite passage in all of Scripture. Because here's what Paul calls us to do as he writes to the, to the church at Corinth. He says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Uh, So many new Christians memorize that verse because there's so much encouragement there. It's like, I've been changed forever because of what Jesus has done. But you always notice, if, if you follow Paul's writings at all, he always shares a huge theological truth with us and then tells us to live in light of that. And so here he shares this huge theological truth with us saying, if you are a disciple of Christ, you are a new creation. God has changed you forever. He is your king, your God, and your father. And then look at what he says. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against him. And look at what our role is in response to that great truth of what God has done in Christ. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because of what God has done, you and I can put on Christ and in that enjoyment of knowing him as God and King, we can live and engage the world around us as culture creators, not consumers as people who love our city, our state, our street, our country, and the world around us because God loves them. And we, can't, and we won't just use the word love the way our culture does, but we'll actually love the way that God loves, which is still just, which is still true and good and yet also merciful and gracious. Where we'll walk through the hard places and through the hard seasons with people and we'll bear burdens with them and we'll love them and call them to faith in Christ because God loves them. If you are a follower of Christ, you and I are citizens of God's family and heavenly kingdom. And the promises that Paul gives us here in Romans 13 is that the return of Jesus is nearer than it's ever been and that we get the privilege of living life now on earth in preparation for our king's arrival. You're not just here hanging out. You're preparing for the return of the king. He is coming back. He will rule. Life now is spent with his church, making much of him until he returns. A king that will rule with equity, justice, peace, kindness, and all those things, love. We can be encouraged to repent of sin and walk in the light, and as Paul says there, making no provision for the flesh. 
So here, here's my encouragement to us today, guys. I want you to ask yourself this question. And, and as, as we take communion here in a minute, before you take communion as, as the band plays music, right, what I would ask you to do is I would ask you just to pray. And as you're praying, I want you to ask yourself this question. And I want you to, to pray to God and ask him this question. Where am I engaged in the culture around me? Where am I bringing life to the culture around me? College students, I'm going to be hard on you guys for a second because you make up a large portion of our congregation. And I've been here long enough to have seen this. And for those that live in this city, you're going to agree with me. Every, every year, every fall, somewhere between 10 and 35,000 college students come into this city and they treat it like a prostitute. They suck resources from it. They suck energy and time from people that live here year-round. They take from the culture, and they get an education, and they leave, and they never give back to it. And every year, there is a vacuum in this city because that's the culture of this city. And you know what? I expect the majority of the students to do that because they don't know Christ. But if you're going to attend this church, I'm going to press you that there is life outside of south of 8th Avenue, east of 75, west of Main Street, and north of Williston Road. There's a lot more going on in this city than that quadrant. There's a lot more going on in this city than Turlington Plaza. There's a lot more going on in this city than your final. I'm not saying your final's not important. You're here to get an education. That's your primary calling right now that God has placed on your life. But there are things that you could give back to in this city as well. And college towns all over this country deal with this every year. The students come in, they consume, they take, they drain resources, and then they leave. We can be different. Right? Where are you engaged in the culture around you? Do you know that Gainesville is one of the highest cities per capita for sex trafficking in the United States? Gainesville. Gainesville, a little old Gainesville, Florida. Do you know that per capita, the disparity in income in the city is some of the worst in the country? Do you know that education in this city can be divided down Main Street on how good it is, along with prosperity and wealth. We can be agents of change for that. But we have to engage and trust God. So ask yourself this question, where am I engaged in the culture around me? Where am I working out the law of love? I am not telling you you need to run for county commissioner. I'm not saying that you need to run against Rick Scott or whoever the Democrat candidate is for Senate seat in the fall. But I am saying you can be engaged. You can know what is going on. You can be an agent of change. And if you're sitting there saying and you already know the answer, it's not going so well, I live in a Christian bubble, I hate politics, I can't stand other cultures, I'm angry at my boss and I ignore my classmates. Here's the good news. Jesus died for that. 
Jesus died for that sin of omission, for that sin of neglect of those around you and your failure to love them well. That's why he came. And his offer to you and I is forgiveness and mercy and peace. And out of that forgiveness and mercy and peace, we worship him and thank him because what other God would do that? And as we live in that grace and that forgiveness that God gives us, we respond not in self-pity, not in self-hatred, but in a solid realization that our love debt has been paid for by God and that we can repent and confess sin and ask God to change us, ask God to move us and to give us opportunities to engage and change the culture around us. And then we can begin to ask him, God, where might I engage those around me? Maybe it's your classmate. Maybe it's your next door neighbor. Maybe it's the homeless person that you pass by every day. Maybe it's downtown and local politics. Maybe God is calling you to leave here and run for public office somewhere. I don't know. But the work of culture creation and loving our neighbor well comes from the men and women of God confessing sin, repenting, and following the way of Christ. Putting on the armor of life and putting on Christ. And in doing that, We get to know people, we engage them, and we live as a testimony to the life-changing power of Jesus. We fulfill the law of love by giving glory to our King. I'm going to pray that we as a church might honor Him in doing what He asks us to do here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love that we can sit here and read your word and be encouraged to engage those around us even though they might not be lovely or worth loving. And we can know that the power lies there to do so because you promised to be with us. And God, you in the throne room of heaven looked upon your creation who rebelled against you and did not follow your commands. And yet you chose in love to come to us instead of ignore us. To engage us instead of turn us away. To call us to you instead of to push us away from you. To change us instead of ignore us. You are the great example. Your kingdom is one that is one of change. Father, forgive us for not loving our city. Father, forgive us for not loving this campus. Father, forgive us for not loving this state, for not loving our country, for not loving our world, but loving ourselves. God, we need you. We need you to save us from ourselves. Father, give us a vision for our lives that is bigger than the vision we would create ourselves. But give us a vision that might submit to you. 
to love our enemies, to submit to our government in love, and to love our neighbors well so that the gospel may go forward. Father, thank you for your son and that all this is possible because of him. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.